Okay, welcome everyone, uh, and thank you for coming to this event on Waste Matters, organized by the Sydney Environment Institute and the Sydney Ideas. Uh, my name is Sonja van Wichle, I'm from the Sociology Department here at Sydney University, and I'll be chairing this event. Um, the evening is set up as follows. We'll have um, Professor Kathy High talk for about 40-45 minutes. And um, we'll have a respondent, Strida Nemani. Um, unfortunately, um, Dr. Catherine Simpson from Macquarie University was not able to come. So we'll have um, Estrida respond to the paper for about five to 10 minutes. And I'll, ha I'll give you some space to respond and then we'll open it up um, to the audience for a Q&A. So now it's my pleasure to introduce to you um, Professor Kathy High. Kathy High is an interdisciplinary artist working in the areas of science, technology, and art. She works with animals and living systems and explores the social, political, and ethical dilemmas surrounding the areas of medicine, bioscience, biotechnology, and interspecies collaborations. She has received numerous awards, um, among them from the highly prestigious Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, and the National Endowment for Arts. Um, her work, her artworks have been shown in film festivals, galleries, museums in Europe, in the US, um, among them the Guggenheim Museum, Documenta, the MoMA in New York City, but also beyond the global north, um, such as the Festival San Sizio in Mexico, and the um, Art Space and Parasite Gallery in Hong Kong. She's also Professor of Video and New Media in the Department of Arts at uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, um, which is a department specializing in integrated experimental arts practices. So the floor is for you. Thank you for that introduction, and I particularly want to thank Estrida for bringing me here all this long way from New York City. Um, it's now 4.15 a.m. in New York, so, um, and also um, the University of Sydney and the Environmental Institute for having me here, so thank you. And this is more of an artist talk than, a, um, than actually a paper. Um, and because I was unfamiliar with the, uh, the nature of the people, the audience that I would be speaking to, I thought I'd give you a, a little bit of context of the work that I'm going to be showing you of my own work. And this is, this is referring to artists working with living systems and biological systems. So in this example, we have um, Edward Steichen, who is a famous uh, uh, US-based photographer um, who is preparing for an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in 1936. And he decided that he wanted to also display his um, delphiniums alongside his photographs. The thing that's interesting about that, he was a, a, a breeder, like an incredibly voracious breeder of these flowers, and obsessed with how they looked and wanted to perfect them. He delayed the exhibition so that the, the flowers were in perfect bloom until the whole thing could be exhibited. So this is one of the first, shall we say, white box exhibitions in the US of a kind of living art in a museum. <coughs> There are many examples, there are way too many examples, so I'm going through, through a few select friends and works just to get you oriented. This is by a Portuguese artist, Martha Domenez, who's one of the leading figures in the field of what we might call biological arts. 
people were working with biology. And this is a piece that she did in 1999-2000 called Nature? Question mark. And it comes back to a lot of discussions that we've been having with this, this whole conference of hacking the Anthropocene. Marta actually, you know, took, uh, changed the, the, the pattern on a moth and butterfly's wings. So she did it in different, different species. But in this case, you can see these amplified uh, designs here are actually additions of hers to the design that naturally appear on the moth's uh, wings. She does, did this while the moths were in cocoon with a hot needle that was pressed into the wings of the moth, which has no nerve endings. So they felt no pain. People always ask that question, so I have to specify that. But there's a question that comes up as to whether this is still nature, or is it nature plus, or is it nature human, or is it nature, you know, what is it exactly? And I think this is one of the early works added to this canon, if we can call it that, and of, of biological arts. And I think it's a really interesting place to begin. Another artist who kind of follows suit, per se, is, is an artist who's a art biologist and an artist. His name is Brandon Ballinger. He's US-based. He's very obsessed with amphibians, but using amphibians to mark toxins in, the, in, the, in the, our environment. So he tracks, he goes out and collects amphibians to see what kind of anomalies he finds in their body. So for example, in this toad, you can see that there are too many limbs in the lower half of its body. Now he's, he's made this evident by taking the specimen back home and staining it with two different stains that show you both the cartilage system and the skeletal system to display this for us. And then he's blown this this uh, image up to about this size that, that I'm projecting here. So, so it's like, as he says, about the size of a small child. So you begin to have a kind of empathy with this creature, which is really only maybe about a centimeter, a centimeter and a half long. So, so this, this is a way that Brandon, both as a scientist, because he teaches people how to do this as citizen science, to go out in the field and collect these specimens themselves, but also himself, how to begin to track our environment and to show people what kinds of uh, problems and toxins we might be facing. Another, another artist who I'm very um, close to, she's actually a student of mine, but also an incredible artist of her, in her own right, Heather Dewey Hagborg, uh, made a project called The Stranger Visions, which is one where she went around the streets of Brooklyn and collected abandoned DNA. Now, what might this be? Gum, cigarette butts, coffee cups. And from that material, the DNA she could collect from that abandoned material, she was able to create enough of a database, genetic database, to begin to create some kind of visualization of these people's faces. And she made 3D faces of them. This is not like a kind of profiling because you can't get enough to really profile someone. But these are some of the practices that are being done with biological surveillance. <coughs> so we need to know where this comes from. Of course, one of the, the key and very important works is by an artist um, who's actually originally from Brazil, but who's living in Chicago and has been there for a long time, Eduardo Cac. And he made this famous piece in 2000 called um, the GFP bunny, the Alba bunny. And, and the Alba bunny was one that was a transgenic animal, which we all are familiar with that term at this point in time. But in 2000, this was like a new term, the year 2000. 
And Alba Bunny had been infused with the GFP, the glowing gene of jellyfish, into its, into its body. Now, it really wouldn't look green like that unless it was like, you know, under a fluorescent light or whatever. It's really pictured like the one he's holding in his arms on the right. But CAC was very interested in this new kind of creature that are being used, created and used in the laboratory for lab work. Um, and he, he said something quite interesting about them, and I'm going to quote him here. Today our ability to generate life through the direct method of genetic engineering prompts a reevaluation of the cultural objectification and the personal subjectification of animals. And in so doing, it renews our investigation of the limits and potentials of what we call humanity. I do not believe that genetic engineering eliminates the mystery of what is life. Um, to the contrary, it awakens in us a sense of wonder towards the living. So I really like that he's looking at what this means to be creating these kinds of uh, animals in the lab and for use in pharmaceutical and medical research and scientific research. Um, and this, this work affected work that I did, so I'm now going to switch into my own practices and my own works. And I had worked quite a bit with animals before, having produced a film called, um, other works as well, but one project was a film called Animal Attraction where I uh, followed a telepathic animal communicator, someone who might be called an animal psychic, although she doesn't claim to be psychic, she just communicates telepathically with animals, and the animals communicate back. So that, that work is online if you just look up animal communication, animal attraction, and my name, and you can watch it online. But this work was done in 2004 to 2006 in two different iterations, and I'm showing you the second iteration that happened at the uh, museum, the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art as part of an exhibit, Becoming Animal, curated by Nato Thompson. Uh, the piece itself was called Embracing Animal, and it was an installation that involved three transgenic rats. They were on exhibit for 10 months in this kind of elaborate housing situation. And there's a quote here from Donna Haraway that kind of situated and, and began this interest for me. Um, I have to read it from the screen because I've got a very small image on my, my screen. Onco Mouse TM, so this is the, this is the cancer mouse that was patented, um, is my sibling and more properly male or female. She, he is my sister. Her essence is to be a mammal, a bearer of definition of mammary glands, and a site for the operation of a transplanted human tumor-producing gene, an oncogene that reliably produces cancer, breast cancer. Above all, oncomouse TM is the first patented animal in the world in, in 1980. By definition, then, in the practices of materialized refiguration, she, he is an invention. So uh, I think that... I felt that there was some kind of kin with these particular transgenic rats that I produced, uh, that I um, worked with for this installation. They're rats that were produced to create medicines for a disease that I have, I have Crohn's disease. And so they were the, the, the first model, the first one of the first transgenic models actually, to be produced. Um, HLA-B27 was their name. Um, in, for pharmaceutical research. So I was kind of doing a reverse engineering, looking back at these creatures and who, who were the subjects on which the research was being done to make my body healthy. Um, so in fact, I felt like they were a kind of kin, although there are all kinds of dynamics around power relationships with this statement, which I'm well aware of and we could talk about later on. So there are problematics in this, but we'll just hold that for now and come back to it if, if need be.
Here's a picture of one of them. This is Echo in the upper corner. Um, and this is the kind of housing situation that they had. They had lots of room. This was about, um, sorry, translating into meters. It was about uh, eight, no, six meters by three meters high. And this went even higher. This went up probably as high as the ceiling as a kind of escape hatch for them. Um, and so the rats, they came from the lab. They were retired breeders. They were, they had like usually a cage about like yay to run around in. So this was like a kind of rat penthouse. And I took in mind a lot of the kind of senses that rats go by. They have very poor sense of vision, but very keen sense of smell. What does that mean? If they were to get sick, they had a vet that checked in on them every month. They were there for 10 months or more often if needed. Areas could be quarantined, et cetera, et cetera. They're kept from the public. The, the, the um, museum was worried the public might get hurt, so we had to make kind of barriers in some ways, but also have them visible. Of course, the thing that was so funny was that the rats slept all the time because they're nocturnal. So it was a kind of aesthetics of, of you know, disappointment, as Arn Katz would say, where the public would come in and see the rats just like sleeping and hiding. It's like when you go to the zoo and you're like, where are those tigers? You know. So that was okay. Um, rats have a really bad rap, as we know. They supposedly started the plague, although that's been disputed. It was really hamsters. And in New York, <laughs> in New York, uh, this is a figure that's very common. So every, every other place I go, I have to explain it. Anybody here know what this figure is? Okay, it's a union, uh, you know, uh, uh, labor dispute going on in front of said building. And the managers are rats. Whenever this inflatable rat is pulled out, it means, it indicates the managers are rats. And in Australia, they call gas. Okay, good. So you have big, like, tick like, you know, inflatables, right? So, yeah. Okay. Now I'm interested in this kind of, you know, uh, commodification of rats that happened with them becoming lab animals. Um, here we have one of the first. Uh, situations for this in the early 20th century, about 1909. This woman, Helen Dean King, at the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia was able to breed albino uh, rats for 22 generations, Norwegian rats for 22 generations, and they all came out so-called the same. This meant that she could ship them places to different scientists, and they would function much like you might ship a chemical. You would get the chemical for your research, you would know that chemical would have a certain compound, you could reliably work on it, the same for each experiment. This is really a weird thing to do with animals, I think. So here are the animals that I ordered from Deconic. It was a little bit under the radar as to how it was done. Um, and we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> the, um, I was very interested in treating the animals with alternative medicines as I was treating my own body and had been for a long time. They were treated homeopathy, and other kinds of um, dietary things. And they actually did thrive, which was what was really interesting. And I did take a huge risk with their lives, which I was well aware of. And they, they lived longer than they uh, were purported to ever have done. And it became a kind of love story because, of course, the person who got to hang out with them the most was the night watchman. And Mike and uh, Wilbur and his wife, Peg, came to me after the exhibition, after I'd taken them home, and said to me, can, I, can we take them? Can we take them home? So after one of them had died, Matilda had died, they were all named, uh, Tara and, uh, and Star 
went back with Mike and, and Peg and lived with them until they died. So it was quite sweet. After this work, I went to here to Australia, Western Australia, the University of Western Australia, to Symbiotica. Many of you are probably familiar with this art and science residency, which is an amazing place run by Yonette Zur and, and Oren Katz, who also have a collaboration called Tissue Culture and Art, where they use tissue culturing to create sculptures. Here's probably one of their uh, more famous projects called Victimless Leather. Um, this is a, a, a kind of comment on the fact that we're always trying to make these kinds of um, uh, you know, alternatives to things like um, you know, leather coats and things like that. And maybe we can grow it in the lab. It's the same theory we have about meat. Maybe we can grow this meat in the lab. And it never quite works out. Because ultimately, we're still using bovine serum to feed these cells, right? So we're still kind of caught up in this conundrum of killing animals to keep these cells alive. But it's still, they, they bring to the table, I think, some of the more interesting ethical conversations around what we should consider semi-living, animals that are caught in the lab and can maybe only live there. So I come back to that comment that, that Donna Haraway made earlier, and this is the rest of the quote, crafted through the ordinary practices that made metaphor into material fact, Onko Mouse's status as an invention who which remains a living animal is what makes her a vampire, subsiding in the realms of the undead. So this is the project that I took on when I came to Symbiotica. It was called the Vampire Study Group, and it's an umbrella for many projects. The first of which was called Rat Laughter, which I'm still working on. It's taken a long time to figure out the technology for this. But what this is about is about um, ultrasonic rat vocalization. Now, rats talk to each other in a whole range of ultrasonic sounds that we can't have access to naturally. And it's really interesting, a lot of animals do, or subsonic sounds. And I'm fascinated by this. I think this is just amazing. So I went into a laboratory and started listening through what was called a bat detector that can downsample those ultrasonic sounds. You can begin to hear what happens in that range, but, the but can downsample it to our hearing range. And um, I was listening to the rats, hoping to hear them say something to each other, something profound. <laughs> and instead, I heard this horrible sound at one point. There were two technicians working behind me. I had headphones on. I'm watching the, another technician play with the rats. And I turned around to the other two. I said, what was that sound? It sounded like firecrackers. It sounded like an explosion, actually. It really hurt my ears. And they said, oh, we just took plastic off a syringe that we were going to give a shot to one of the rats. I said, oh, that's really bad. You know, that's probably really stressing them out. So um, we had a really interesting conversation about what is the sound environment for the rats in the lab as a result of that. But I was really fascinated with this idea of thinking about how they communicate still. And you know, as the technicians left and turned on the country western music as they left for the day, I was like, yeah, maybe that's not good for the rats. I'm not sure that was in their lab, the lab, you know, in the residence for the rats. But maybe we can do better than that. So I thought maybe we could make a concert of their laughter. They were really depressed. They needed something. So I found this film online by this uh, researcher who's in the US. His name is Jake Pancep, and it's open source. You can find it, um, which is about tickling rats. And he was really obsessed with this. And so let me just play this film for you. It's really kind of low quality, but I think it doesn't matter. You'll get the gist of it because it's so wonderful. 
as we have listened to animals playing, we have heard what appeared to be the sounds of laughter. And uh, we studied these for a couple of years without quite understanding that this might be laughter. And then one day we decided to tickle some animals. And we realized that we had to look at the sounds at a very different register than we can hear. So we uh, obtained these transducers that are called fast detectors that can bring very high frequencies down to our auditory range. And when we did this and we listened in, we could tickle animals and generate a lot of vocal activity that appears to be laughter. These animals would begin to enjoy our company and they would start to play with our hands and wherever we would put our hands, they would follow us. And when we tested these animals to ask whether they were enjoying this kind of activity, the unambiguous answer was yes. I'm sorry, you couldn't see the film. What he was doing was literally kind of like running his hand around a, a kind of a, like a fish tank, and the, the rat was chasing his hand to be tickled, like chasing it. And it was really lovely. So what you were hearing was a kind of 50, a 50 kilohertz sound that is being downsampled by a bat detector that is the rat giggling as he was tickling their belly. So I'm sorry, I, I do have um, a couple other videos, so I'm going to have to do a little, you know, finagling here. Anyway, um, I, I've finally gotten some ultrasonic equipment that I'm working with, and we're working with um, uh, rat fanciers in the States. So this is, I don't know if you have them here. People who, who own rats and trying to collect sounds. Uh, yeah, Evan Kirksey has been helping me with this. It's quite wonderful. And um, other people, uh, Jesse Stiles, who's the musician. And so we're hopefully, and Michelle Temple, who's is my student, who's been helping me, especially with the ultrasonic uh, equipment. So we're getting closer. And hopefully I can go visit Jake. But I do think that, you know, rats are kind of our totem animal. Uh, they follow us everywhere. And I think that it's important to think about this idea of laughter as being contagious, perhaps. And this is what I'm trying to test out. And something that, that you know, also relates us very closely to them that we never really thought about before. Another project that um, I worked on in, in Symbiotica was called Blood Wars. And this is a actual blood um, war of two people's white blood cells against each other. Um, I'll explain how the project worked, but what I was trying to do with this project, project was also to look at the aggressive language used around immunology, you know, and, and think of, of how we can kind of both exaggerate that and then also get, get beyond that. In this project, I took samples from two different uh, donors um, who interestingly, very willingly, gave me their blood. <laughs> um, and this is a model of it. It's, it's, it's based after the World Cup. So I'm sure you've heard of that, right? And so, you know, this can upscale and downscale. It's probably the smallest it could be. These are, these are two players and two players. Whoever wins that match goes on to play each other. That's probably the smallest version of it, but it can go up and down. Um, and, and so... Um, what happens is that, and here's two fierce competitors, um, 
what happens is that I, they take blood from each of them, as I said, with a phlebotomist. I can't really do that quite yet. I'm going to learn. But, um, and then separate out the white blood cells from the red blood cells in the plasma. Um, and of course, that's the picture of me in the lab. Everybody, every good bio artist has to have their requisite picture of themselves in the lab. Um, and then I stain each person's white blood cells two different colors, so red and a green, and put them back together in a petri dish, which basically um, is where they begin their battle. Right now, the, unfortunately, I, I'm and then and then I put it underneath a microscope, and for eight to fifteen hours depending on the circumstances. We, t we did time-lapse photography um, to follow what occurred between the cells over this time. Um, this is probably not going to play, which is too bad. Yep, not working. Uh, maybe I can go back online. Anyway, you can look it up online. Google Blood Wars in my name and you'll find it. Uh, if we have time, I'll come back to it at the end. But the thing that's really quite beautiful about this, it's almost like watching a structural film. You see the cells begin to work against each other, and um, they're, they're, they're stunning. Um, and I actually studied with structuralist films, uh, filmmakers as I started my career. Um, Tony Conrad, who I should note as my teacher who died this past weekend, so this talk is dedicated to him. Um, but the cells are really quite amazing because oftentimes they fought and fought each other off, but sometimes they made love, and sometimes they even refused to fight. So these kind of weird anomalies, and this is not a scientific experiment, I don't have any control, this, you know, please, this is an artistic experiment, but, um, and performance, but um, what is interesting is that it does begin to defy this idea of the kind of innate aggression that we expect, and there are other kinds of behaviors that seem to seemed very interesting, which were looked, were observed by an immunologist who I was working with, Louise Filgera, who was working there in Symbiotica at, at the University of Western Australia. So that, that anomaly led me to the current project, again, an umbrella title that I'm working on called Gut Love. So I'm going to quickly go through these. Now, okay, we're going to start talking about poop. So look, I don't know if any of you have seen this Miranda July film, You, Me, and Everyone We Know. Okay, for those of you who've seen it, you remember this scene, which is quite amazing. There's a scene in this film, which is a great film, I invite you to watch it, where there are two young boys who will go online and get into a kind of sex uh, online bulletin board, let's call it. And they're trying to pick up this woman. They've kind of got her on the string. And the older brother says to the younger brother, what should I say? And he says this. You poop into my butthole, and I'll poop into your butthole back and forth forever. <laughs> and the guy, the older brother, writes it skeptically, and the woman writes back, that's really hot. <laughs> so we're talking about a product that is both, you know, taboo, but also there's some charge to it here, right? Now, I sent my poop away to this place in New York, in the U.S., which I'm sure you have them here, too, called U-Biome. Lots of places testing your stuff. I don't know that I actually recommend doing this, not because it's messy or anything like that, but because your, your bacterial profile might be close to your, closely linked to, like, your identity. So you might want to think about privacy issues around this. Well, I've just given them away, and not only given them away, I've paid them for, to do research for me, you know. 
But I keep getting these emails from them that are really interesting. Are you depressed? Is your bacteria behaving? You know, every week I get these. So this is ubiquitous now. We're all part of this bacterial community. And, and you know, you can find stuff in the paper every day about, you know, the gut biome and, and the human biome in general. There are also these products on the market. There's one called um, Mother Dirt, which I was actually given uh, by my brother at Christmas. And it's a bottled bacteria you can begin to use in different parts of your body instead of soap. Um, have I been able to get myself to use it yet? Not really. But I'm trying. You know, I've done the facial part, you know. So, but it's, again, this, this framing of this product as a biome-friendly, like, and, and against this beautiful environment. So we're joining our biome with that biome. You know, it's, and, and the, 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 actually, this, this product is based on animals going out and, and rolling in the dirt, and that there are certain bacteria in the dirt that keep their immune systems healthy. So that's what their premise of their research is based on. Um, okay. I want to show you a little excerpt of this documentary that I've been working on, which is called Fecal Matters, um, which, is a, which is on um, fecal microbial transplants. This has been in the uh, hot topic lately, um, and I've interviewed a bunch of different doctors and researchers doing it, and so now I have to do a little configuring because it's not going to, let me just try it, but I doubt this is going to work. We are Okay, no. Okay, so we'll come back to this. And in the meantime, don't look at my messy desktop, please. <laughs> so embarrassing. God. See? <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Please don't. Please just pretend you didn't see that. Okay. And this is a little bit longer. We're not going to watch the whole thing. Uh, so we'll just watch a few, about, you know, maybe a few minutes of it. So these are the two scientists. Two, there are other scientists being added in. This so is work in progress. is uh, fecal microbiota transplantation. And what we do is we take a donor stool and we transplant that stool into the recipient's body. The whole goal is to, in essence, we are transplanting stool, but the goal is to give the new microorganisms, the bacteria, and to have a chance for the new microorganisms to actually implant into the recipient's body. And we do that either through uh, a nasogastric tube, where we make a, a solution of the stool, we do a colonoscopy and then take the donor stool's solution and spray it uh, into the recipient's uh, intestines. We can also operate through animals or through flexible semoroscopy, which is like a mini version of colonoscopy. I try to use the example uh, which uh, Dr. Colleen Kelly gives from Brown University. Think of our intestine as kind of a lawn. Um, and we have weeds going on in our lawn. And the weeds are kind of little bad seedage bacteria. Uh, so if there are just a little bit of weeds, you can use a weedy side. But if there's a lot of weeds in the lawn, really what you have to know is do a total lawn renovation. What fetal transformation does is kind of takes into that where you kind of bring in new donors microbiota and kind of do a complete lawn innovation. Studies have shown uh, that as you follow up, ultimately my microbiota will be between what my original microbiota was 
and what I got in the past lab. We actually replaced that entire microorganisms. So there's a lot of good commensal bacteria which are there, and those good bacteria actually prevent the bad bacteria or seeds to come back. Um, so I think that changing that environment uh, in a very positive way prevents the bad bacteria from coming back. So currently the mainstay of CDF treatment is either antibiotics, um, but up to 20% of patients will keep on getting back to the side of antibiotics. Uh, and especially in those recurrent CDF patients, or in patients where we call it refractory CDF patients, where antibiotics are not all effective and they're very safe. The stool transplant is very effective, up to 92% effective. That's amazing. I mean, that's so far. That's a success rate. Saw who was asking the questions back there also is my collaborator on this project, Guy Schaefer. Um, I'm very much in debt to him. So, uh, okay. So, uh, I think, uh, yeah, uh, I'm going to skip this. But, but basically, um, this is a, a sculpture of mine uh, thinking about kind of homemade, you know, systems we might be thinking be able to do in the future of storing healthy stool. Um, this is a stool. Uh, Preserved in, in honey, you know, which is a natural preservative. Um, but the but the the idea that that we were sort of began this separation from our poop in a way in the this 16th century, where there was this famous edict in France in 1539 that um, demanded that every house kind of take care of their own poop, either build a cesspool or put it out front for it to be picked up. So it became both a kind of way of suddenly becoming secretive per se, but also you know, controlled by the state. There's very complicated issues around stool, I think, and this needs to be unpacked. I'm still unpacking this myself, but this is from Dominique Laporte's History of Shit, which is a really great book if you feel so inclined. So one of the projects that I embarked on around this, um, thinking about fecal microbial transplants, um, was uh, to produce a series of photographs where I emulated David Bowie. Now, now why I came up with this was because a few years ago, actually when Astrid and I were on a residency in Finland together, uh, another artist, Kira O'Reilly, said to me, well, whose shit would you want? And I didn't even blink an eye. I said, well, David Bowie. 
And, and that was kind of came out as a ridiculous statement, but then I realized that that probably was really true. So I tried to produce these, I mean, I produced these photographs where I looked at the works of his early on that were really seminal to me as a young woman and were really important, um, as so many pieces of his were to so many people. Um, and then I uh, sent him this letter I don't know if you can read it. It's kind of hard to read from the back. Can you read it? Um, Dear David Bowie, I have a bargain for you. I'm writing you with a strange request. I am a lifelong fan. I've been following your career since I was little. I was born in 1954, so not that much younger than you, but enough so that I feel like a younger sister. I offer these photos to you, reenacting famous images of your career. I know that thousands of fans have done the same, Tilda probably the best, but I humbly offer mine among the others. <coughs> I was hoping these photos might capture your attention for a moment. I want to exchange these for a throwaway item, your poo. I want to conduct a fecal transplantation with your stool and plant in your poop gut biome into my colon. This goes against all the rules. It should be someone close to me, someone under 60, pre-tested, etc. But I know we will be compatible. <laughs> it goes on. Sadly, um, I had sent it to some weird, you know, agency. It never probably got to him, or if it did, he was pre quite preoccupied in the past year, as we all know. So the thing that was interesting to me was this desire to not only take on David Bowie's poop, but to take on this identity, that, that there would be something kind of passed through the biome in a way that I would become him, was something that I clearly believed and held dearly, although I don't actually believe in home FMTs, so I would caution everybody about them, but had his poop come to me, I'm sure I would have done it. This past February, um, in just in summary, I'm going to tell you two projects that are sort of nascent and not even worked out, but just to see where this is going. I was an artist in residence in a gut biome lab in LA at the University of Southern California with Will DiPaolo. They generously took me into their laboratory. I was the first visiting artist they'd ever taken on. This was, a, this was quite amazing. They're specializing in the gut biome and immunology. Uh, here's a picture of their view, which I thought was just quite amazing. Um, and, you know, there are biomes going on around the body in general all over. Um, and this is, as I said, very current. One of the, one of the projects they're, they're working on is to create organoids outside the body. These are taking intestinal cells outside of a, a, a body and creating a mini intestine, which I find to be an amazing project. And I would like to do it with my own, you know, intestines and begin to sort of take on my own organ, my own intestines, and start to work with it, and nurture it. I'm good at caring for things somehow that are slightly more outside my body than inside. Um, this is a project that the head of the lab, Will DePaolo, and I came up with, which is called Testing the Waters, which is kind of crazy and looking at autoimmune challenges for white blood cells and fecal, uh, you know, the, the gut biome, et cetera. This is me and Will working in the lab. Basically what happened was that we both offered to use our own stool in the lab, and he had all the, you know, health certificates, I mean, the ethical certificates to cover this, so this was all legit. But they had never worked with fecal matter from humans in this lab before. They'd only worked with mice, so it was really interesting. And there was all of the shame and weirdness around it that you can imagine. When I walked in the first day to do the experiment, carrying my little bag of poop from home, Will looked at me and he goes, you're late, I've been holding it. And he ran to the bathroom and came back and then said, don't look, don't look. I don't want anybody in the lab to see it. And it was very, very strange, but interesting what it showed to both of us. Here's, here we are weighing out our poops. Um, you know, they're different colors. 
you know, they're, they're, they were totally different textures, very interesting. We, we did all of this kind of protocol to them so that they became just a body of cells. Here they are, our fecal lysates and H2O. So it became very abstracted by the end of it. And that's what I worked with for this particular experiment. We took blood from each other um, and, again, did the separation of white blood cells. But here's what Will had proposed that we try to do. We take both of our blood and introduce feces from both of us into the blood. His theory was that because I have Crohn's, and he's been doing research on inflammatory bowel diseases, that my blood system would recognize some things from my gut intestine and react to it. Like it shouldn't react so quickly. It should just sort of be like foreign object. Hmm, okay. But because it had had a previous introduction, he, his theory was that it would react to it really quickly. I said, okay, fine. And here's what the experiment translated from that blackboard scratch looked like. Um, again, a pile of cells. Now here's what some of the imaging showed. This doesn't look like a whole lot, but this is my um, blood with my fecal matter on the upper right and Will's blood with his fecal matter on the bottom. Mine supposedly, according to him, looks sick. <laughs> I didn't quite register that, you know, but I was like, okay, okay, until we got to this. Now, this looks pretty dramatic. And what this was, was my T cells going after the foreign object of my fecal matter. Now, this is the first time I'd ever seen an image of my T cells going overreacting, like they do as an autoimmune diseased person. And there was something in this visualization that was so dramatic and so over the top and like, is that dead or is it alive? Is it an explosion or is it, you know, I didn't know how to quite read this and I still don't. But that was, that was something that really caught my imagination enough to want to revisit this, you know, because we only did this once. It was like, it took us three days or four days to do it. It was like time consuming, you know, it was crazy trying to get everybody to poop on the schedule and everything. So, but I'll go back and do it again. And then another one we're trying to do is this um, family, gut, family gut biome crests, uh, where we will take fecal matter from families, including your, your plants, your animals, et cetera, et cetera, and do swabs of them and begin to track what biomes are in your immediate environment, what biomes are in your immediate community, how are you affecting each other, and do you have a particular signature that constitutes your family? Here are some of the bacteria that we were looking at from that swabbing of just our fecal matter, um, which I can't do bacterial morphology yet, so I can't really tell you what they were, but you know, it's one of those, again, I'm not pictured in the lab, but my bacteria is not pictured in the lab. Everybody has that requisite picture. I would like to do a DIY anaerobic chamber, much like this one that was built in GenSpace, which I'm a board member and, of, and um, you know, maybe take this into a gallery where I can invite people to participate in this project, bring in their samples, and we could do it on the spot and over a few days so you could see what the streaking produced. Um, this is just in summary to say that, uh, and this is a, you, if you'd seen another film that I was going to show you, you would understand this Bristol stool chart. This is actually how you can type your stools in case anybody's interested in going home and typecasting your stools. But this is what's used in science and in any kind of, you know, microbiome studies in general. It's a really old practice that's been, well, it's not that old. It started in the 1990s. Sorry, <laughs> really old. Um, and uh, in Bristol. And, um, and so, but this is a kind of 
perhaps I'm thinking like these, this gut biome thing, the human biome thing, and especially gut might become a future gift economy. We um, might be starting personal stool banks where we could offer each other, you know, like a, a healthier stool um, for DIY fecal to microbial transplants. There are fecal st stool banks in existence right now, so but not necessarily personal ones. It might be a new energy source, it might be a new fertilizer, it might be new perfume products, new dating services, test your stools against each other or something. New restaurants, you know, like sourdough bread has fecal matter in it, so, you know, like we could go way far from there. Lindsay, where are you? We got to get on this. Um, new medicines, new gift exchanges, new art. I don't know, I think there's such a hype around this area, but I also think there is great potential because I think in terms of thinking through um, medical practices and pharmaceutical practices, this is a new paradigm for looking at the body as an ecosystem and as a, a way to tie back to the general environment, which it, the likes of which I haven't seen as a patient in the 40 years that I've had Crohn's. So for me, it's an exciting moment and for the scientists that I've been interviewing and talking to, for them too. So I have great hope for it, but there are questions too. So I welcome your questions. Thank you very much. All the websites you can go visit and, you know, pretty much by most. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Um, I'd like to invite um, Astrida um, to the front. She's um, based here at the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies at Sydney Uni. She held uh, academic positions in Canada, the UK, and Sweden. She is associate editor of the journal Environmental Humanities, a key researcher with the Sydney Environment Institute and co-convener of the Composting Feminisms and the Environmental Humanities Reading Group here at Sydney Uni and a lot more. But um, um, she's going to uh, give some comments and questions to um, Kathy High's talk. Okay, I'm actually not going to give very many comments because I imagine there are a lot of people who have questions for Kathy and I can talk to Kathy ad, ad nauseum afterwards. Um, but maybe one thing I'd ask, uh, I'd, I'd like to invite Kathy to pull out a little more really pertains to the final comments you made in your talk and when you said, you know, this is one of the, the first instances you've seen of understanding this thing as an environment and sort of using some of our knowledges about environments and ecosystems and bringing them you know, to ourselves. And of course, this, you know, we could talk a lot about how this is a breaking down of the sort of post-enlightenment nature culture split, human nature split, we in here, us out there, and all of those sort of binarisms that we want to challenge. But I'm wondering if you see also some connection the other way. It's like thinking about this as an environment helps us, but I'm wondering what can sort of thinking about poo and waste and FMT or these things also give to us in terms of thinking about environmental issues, you know, and, and um, like interfacing back out the other way. Like what will this give us or help us think about in terms of uh, coping with some of the environmental problems we're facing right now? Um, so let me start with that one. Okay. Cool. Is that good? Yeah. Yeah. This is like an awkward um, thing. I know. Do we, do we I'm going to sit. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> anyway. So you know what? I'm going to go sit back down. Okay. I'll, because I'll just you can riff, riff on, on this for a minute. And then maybe we can open it up. That sounds great. That, that sounds great. My, my pleasure. That's um, okay. Okay. So, um, 
Oh, I just had a thought and it went out of my head. But but basically, um, yeah, I think that there's there's something really interesting about this way that these kinds of conversations can keep bring us back in touch with things like our poop um, in ways that you know, okay, as a Crohn's patient, I'm in touch with it a lot, and maybe those of you who have children or pets are in touch with it a lot, you know. But but there's a way that there it has become a cultural separation. Partly out of necessity, you know, I mean, I know you shouldn't eat your poop and all that kind of stuff, but also, and we haven't parsed all that out, like, because people will be taking probably pills of this stuff at some point, you know, capsules. Um, but, but I think that there's, a, there's also, this relates to a kind of bigger environmental question about waste, as you were beginning to point out. There's, we need to get back in touch with, um, what all these materials are, and not just, and, and Gay Hawkins writes quite a bit about this in her book, um, The Ethics of Waste, not just sort of like take the recycling to the curb and then that's the end of it. And we feel kind of moralistic because we put it out there. And it's almost the same with flushing the toilet, right? And so, you know, how to manage these things and how to incorporate them back into our lives. I think is a bigger systemic question that we begin we need to begin to ask ourselves and begin to answer and and begin to think about. Yes, you have a question. What do you do with your installations in the future? Oh, well, um, <laughs> there's a lot of them in my basement. <laughs> I don't have a gallery. I don't have a I don't I don't work with the commercial art world. I I um, operate with uh, funding grants and um, commissions. So I, I store them, yeah, and sometimes re-exhibit them, sometimes not, you know, so yes, they're... they're so in a way they're divorced from the real environment, the natural environment, they're, they're separated. Well, it depends on which ones they are, but oftentimes, yeah. I mean, I'd like to incorporate them more, um, but, uh, yeah, these things take a long time to produce is the, is the problem, and a lot of kind of, you know, like months in the lab sometimes. So. Um, Sometimes, you know, it's, I, I have been accused, or people, some people accuse artists like myself of spending more time in the lab and then not enough time on the production of the art. But, you know, I think it's actually an exchange. I think this is what's really interesting in this area is this exchange between the kind of interdisciplinary, you know, people involved. So myself and the scientists, the fact that I was able to talk my way into this gut biome lab recently in, you know, at the uh, USC, the University of Southern California, was really quite amazing because these scientists really had no idea what I was doing there when I first walked in, all the t teammates. And they were lovely <coughs> and welcoming and showed me their work and were so incredible. But they also were like, you know, what are you doing here? And kind of questions like this too, like what do you do with your work? I don't understand. And by the end of it, we both had an a incredible, um, more, deep, more deeply kind of rooted understanding of each other's processes and why we were working together because I was able to bring to them a kind of kind of more generalized question more like the public questioning and they were able to they were really involved in the specifics and details of their research and their research was so great and but it was so looking at like how the diet of this particular rat and it's uh, one diet get, makes them fat and one diet doesn't and you know what does that do that research but not the kind of bigger implications of what that might mean and so with a conversation between 
the, the two of us, we were able to begin to start thinking about how this could go beyond the, the you know, just their research papers that will go out into the scientific journals. Um, not that I'm interested in necessarily just illustrating science. This is not that. This is more like, I think of this more as a kind of, uh, almost like a translation, per se, and a, and a, and a bigger conversation. So, I, I don't know if that really answers your question, but talk, I talked around it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for a fascinating talk. It really blew my mind in all kinds of directions. But I want to ask two questions. Sure. Uh, the first has to do with the fact that in most of the work, you yourself is so much in this. Yeah. Your somatic, uh, the kind of somatic presence, and also you have somatic presence. Yeah. So to tease out the very kind of political and social dimension of the kind of experiment, which also makes it into a very treacherous and risky taking kind of situation, right? So I'd like to hear basically how you reflect upon that kind of methodology to this kind of practice that's putting yourself so much in the center of the vortex. So the other question is, uh, you brought the issue of the ethical relationship between human nature, human animal relationship, right? So one example you used was the rat where the trans transgenic rats that were used to produce medicine or develop medicine for human disease. Mm -hmm. So then, in a way, we could uh, bring up the dimension of that in thinking about how sentient animals are being used for humans. And then on the other hand, what I'm also thinking is, when talking about the fecal transplant, it started with humans. And I, I know that now people are starting to do that for animals as well. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it's going, you know, in this case, human bodies as the subjects or objects of fecal transplant become permanent for fecal transplant for animals. That you, that's a really great point, and I really appreciate both of these questions. So you're going to have to help me remember both of them. But I'm going to start with the latter one first. Um, the fecal microbial transplants is actually a really old tradition. Um, it's, it dates back at least 4,000 years and was probably started in China. Um, it came to the U.S. in about 1950s and was used with animals. It was used in veterinary practices, and it was actually used with patients in the 1950s, but this one scientist who was practicing it couldn't really sell it. He just couldn't get enough, you know, <laughs> enough behind it, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so it has been used with, with animals for a long time. And in fact, most of the experiments that are being done in the lab right now are being done with animals. And, and it's something just as simple as take the poop from the healthy mice and put it in the cage with the unhealthy mice, and they get healthier. I mean, that's like a really reductive way of saying it, but you know, there's example after example after example of that. The thing that's interesting about your question raises two points for me. One is, so we're thinking about these kinds of sentience of animals, et cetera, et cetera, but what about the sentience of the bacteria? Like once we get into this and the, and the yeast and the fungus and all the other things that are in us. So once we start getting into these fecal microbial transplants as a kind of ordinary practice, and we start thinking about shifting, which we do by taking um, probiotics and things like that, shifting our gut biome, for example, or washing yourself, you're changing your bacteria, brushing your teeth. What are we doing with the bacteria? What is their sentience? And that's where some interesting work probably will come out in the next few years, you know, thinking about that. The other thing is that we really don't know anything. The thing that's really interesting about this research is it has pointed out to me that we don't know anything. And I love being in that position because we don't know so much 
that that's why a lot of scientists are saying, I'm not sure you should really get that fecal microbial transplant because you don't know what it is really all about. If you're dying and you're on your deathbed and you're suffering from C. difficile, of course, go for it, you know. But, but for a general population, you know, who knows? We don't know what's there. So that's such an interesting thing that there's so much unknown, and everybody says it. All the scientists are saying it. Everybody's doing research in this area, and I find that fascinating. Um, and to your other question about why I use myself, you know, this comes out of a, a, a feminist position um, where early on, as an artist, I started working around um, diseased bodies, coming out of my own diseased body. And but it wasn't always just about myself; it was about other. Patient, women as patients, particularly around the medical system um, and the histories of that. And, um, and I just felt that as a strategy, and we can all take, we all take different ones, and mine may change, so don't hold me to anything, um, but as a strategy, this is a way of opening up work to people to hopefully they begin to identify. It kind of, um, is it, not only is it political, um, in that it's a kind of equalizing of the work so that people can say, oh yeah, I have a disease too, I can understand this, you know. But also there's a way that um, it presents, uh, you know, a kind of uh, maybe a kind of honesty about, you know, the challenges that we're all facing, I, I would hope. Um, that kind of get at it? Great. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. I feel like there's a book called Bioart Bathroom somewhere <laughs> in this. Um, and I, I'm really, I'm curious if you could talk more about this beautiful network of friendship, this sort of body fluid network of friendship that you developed with your collaborator when you were resident in this lab, and how actually exchanging both experimentally and in real life and in real domestic and labs like that mixture between the interior domestic space of the bathroom and the, the workspace of the lab, how maybe that just strikes me as a really profound art science collaboration that's like personal in that kind of personal and political way that you were just describing, but also seems like um, a way of, or a methodology for art science that's, a, that's about like body fluid yeah. and, the, and real bodily exchange. And I just wonder if that might be something. Well, that's a really great question um, also, and, and thank you for that. I don't, you know, Will and I, um, I should say that Will DiPaolo is a very incredible individual. And he's um, not just magnanimous, but he's really a genius. I mean, because he, he has a vision not just for his lab and his work, but he has a vision that's quite quite grand in the sense that, that he's constantly pushing the people. He has high, high, high standards for the people who work with him. And he also has um, a real sense of environmental, sort of the environmental impact of his work, which I think is really unique to scientists. He also recognizes the importance of art, not just in bringing me in. There's a collaborator who he works with, Amy Parker, who's his lab manager, who is, Somebody who's, you know, established a social media network for them, done their website, which is gorgeous, does all these beautiful pictures on Instagram of the lab, you know, all this stuff. 
he recognizes a need to kind of put out a face that is aesthetic for the lab, which is really interesting because it's not, it's not the case with, with all scientists. Will and I will continue to work together. He's actually just got an incredibly great um, endowed chair and he's moving to Seattle, to the University of Seattle, uh, University of Washington in Seattle, and he has his own lab. He's putting into the lab these vitrines for art that are embedded in the lab itself. I mean, this is like, you got to love him, you know? And so it may not be my art, it might be my art, but it might be other people's art, but he's got projection areas and all this stuff. So he's somebody who's quite rare. And I will continue to t try and tease this uh, area out with him. And, and he, you know, I, I mean, we agreed that we have to keep working together. So it's a rare uh, collaboration. And I think this is the thing I would say to people is that these are the kind of collaborations you need to go with. I literally jumped on this one from a gut instinct, <laughs> forgive me. We were both, I, w I had an exhibition in, um, at UCLA and there was a series of talks that people gave after the exhibition and I was one of them but Will was one of them and I just was really drawn to his work and the, the organoid thing really got me, you know, the organoid, I was like, oh. I want to do that. And, um, and I just said, that's when I just met him and talked to him and then literally wrote him an email. We had talked for 10 minutes. And so it was very quick kind of instinct and recognition of what was going on. So I encourage people to go with that. So thanks. Yeah. Um, I had a question. Sure. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, the literature that I'm familiar with is just um, this recent research in the microbiome um, that goes to um, primitive societies in Africa in order to look at, you know, their uh, microbial yeah. makeup and um, and seeing what potential there lies for uh, fecal transplantations in patients that have obesity, for instance, right. uh, and and for all other kinds of stuff, but. Um, that, I mean, there's a strong, of course, post-colonial dimension in there, and uh, I guess my question would be about, you know, these more global power relations, how economies could come in, as you already um, um, engaged with at the end of your talk, but also um, if you were to do this project that you did with the rat, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, with how would that pan out when you wouldn't do the fecal transplantation with David Bowie, mm -hmm. but with these um, African tribes? Right. And and yeah. what could art do to expose, you know, these? I think it can. Yeah. But but how? Yeah. How how would you see those um, problematic um, components of these? new technologies that, that mm -hmm. are also emerging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I didn't touch on any of this um, in this talk. And this is a really political dimension to this work. Um, you know, who, who is the perfect healthy donor is, is what the question is here. And um, it's a really complicated issue. Um, first of all, the, the, the repopulate poop that um, Emma Allen Vercoy was put, was making basically. She made it from two healthy donors. The two healthy donors, the reason she considered them healthy was because they had had very little, if any, antibiotics in their lifetime. Now, how many people here have never had antibiotics? 
Oh, hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's very hard to find a population like this, right? So that's one issue. The antibiotic issue has become key, and it really dominates the Western world um, and other places. But you know, and it's becoming, as we know, prob problematic too. And I think that this this quest to find the perfect poop by going to these alternative, you know, quote unquote primitive. Um, lifestyles that, that involve eating very simply and you know and it takes us to places like Greek islands and it's not you know it's not just in Africa it's many different sites around the world um, is extremely loaded um, it reminds me of the um, and I'm gonna forget the name of it now there was a, a project that was called the vampire project by a nickname but it was a a project early on where they were t they were collecting blood samples it was when the human human um, Genome project was going on. The genographic project. Yes, yeah. the genographic project was likewise going around the world to these um, indigenous groups that were supposedly threatened to collect their blood samples, and, it, and the groups got extremely offended by it. The indigenous community in general, globally, kind of rose up and said, "No, you know, we can't do this. Um, we can't participate because it was just too complicated and too weird, and and issues of consent." Was, would become really complicated in these scenarios, and, and sometimes well, scientists don't have any tolerance for that. You know, I don't scientists know. Were, I don't want to put words um, in anybody's mouth. Were saying what kind of history they? It was overriding culture. Right. The genes were overriding culture. Yeah. Right. So, so the same. I think they're going to be facing some of the same issues. But I think that the thing that's going to save us per se in this is that those kinds of diets may not work for us. Because it's, I think it's much, that's what I mean when I say that we don't know anything. It's going to be much more complicated than just like, you know, groovy poop from, uh, <laughs> you know, the sub-Sahara or whatever. It's going to be, it, because there's going to be so many more factors that we don't know yet. And, and I think it's, it's, that people may think that might be an answer and maybe it'll be part of an answer, but I don't think it's going to be it. And I, and I do think, but I think politically we have to be really conscious of it for sure. Yeah. Hi. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, I, I'm also very interested in the area that I, I also have Crohn's disease and I'm writing about soil at the moment and about um, the microbiology of, and care for soil. And, yes. Um, but one, one thing I'm interested in with, um, to, do with, to do with the microbiome is um, about the political economy of this kind of research and about personalised medicine. Like, you know, it seems like personalised medicine is very, um, like, maybe capital intensive and maybe it's, you know, it will be in the future, it will be. I, think, I, I can't imagine that being something that is for anything other than the rich. And particularly, like, you know, being in a place like the US where um, there is a private health system, and, you know, a lot of the new classes of drugs are, like, uh, a lot of the new classes of drugs, Crohn's drugs, are like some of the most expensive drugs, mm -hmm. the, the biologics and stuff. Um, yeah, so I, I'm wondering, have you seen any, like, work in sort of enlarging the commons? I know you're talking about, like, gift economy. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Earlier with poop, and like, are there scientists who have encountered who are trying to, um, you know, not patent 
certain um, microbes, but rather making it available for yeah. um, public proliferation yeah. somehow. And yeah, it's I, uh, you know, um, uh, this is this is the moment where I have to just say, like, we all need to participate in, in DIY community bio labs and start building them everywhere so that we can all have access to this kind of research and, and participate in it ourselves. Because this is the only way it's going to actually begin to become personalized, really. Because you know that the pharmaceutical companies are just going to develop whatever, the next, you know, probiotic and sell it and then say, oh, wait, that one doesn't work, try this one. And, you know, it won't happen the way we want it to. I know, so, but yeah, but but I do know, I mean, for example, um, there's a stool bank in, in outside of Boston called Open Biome that is actually going to be part of this finished film that I'm working on. And I interviewed them and they are collecting, I mean, they pay people for their poop, which is really awesome. And they, um, I mean, you guys, should have something here like this. I'm sure you too. And um, but they're screening they're screening their their people really closely. Uh, and now I don't know exactly what they're screening for. I mean they're screening them, but they're starting to get more and more into what they're eating, how they're like, you know, what kind of habits they have in terms of exercise, et cetera, et cetera, to begin to determine if they're what makes their stool good. They're also tracking what stool is good for whom, mm -hmm. where. They also are a nonprofit, and they sell the stool. For $250 per thing, per sample, and I was going to show you a film about making the sample, but sorry, <laughs> didn't work. Um, but but that's cheap. That's cheap, you know, considering what they could probably be getting for it. So I think they're a really good example of scientists who are trying to to keep make a kind of commons. They've got a they've got a bank, you know. I think these things are going to become more prolific. And um, I think that's, and that's why I was talking about personalized stool banks, because I think that people will start maybe doing their own. You know, like maybe when you're a little bit younger and healthier, you might think about, you know, freezing your stool in, in some way. So later on, if you get something, maybe you could, maybe you could try to repopulate your gut with that. You know, it, it, you know, at this point we don't know, but. I think that those kinds of strategies are going to be important. So I don't have any other answers beyond that, which I wish I did. But we need to start creating those kinds of comments. I totally agree with you, and I thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. We've got a few more minutes. Yeah. I have a question, which is probably going to show my ignorance. But um, I have heard talk. Oh, I've heard some information about the whole biochemical aspect as well of this sort of experiments with say helping with mental health <laughs> with mental health issues and like that. I was wondering if you'd come across any of that through your work. I mean I remember hearing a story about um, uh, doctors who were trying to assist uh, a child who was characteristically of this generation with lots of antibiotics and um, that repopulating her gut assisted with um, a sort of uh, OCD type um, problem that she had. And I was wondering if you yeah, there's a really great book that's just come out recently, well, not too, yeah, recently, called Gut Feminism by Elizabeth Wilson, which addresses some of that, which I think is, you know, I haven't, I've read the article that led to the book, but not the book, but the, the book is really keen on this whole notion that you're describing. And, you know, they are looking into all of these things, including the treatment of things like autism. 
with the, the with gut biome. And so this relationship, particularly of the brain and 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 the um, gut, is key, and is being looked at um, quite closely. I I have yeah I could. You know, over a drink, I'll tell you all the horror stories of you know being treated for two years straight on very heavy antibiotics for my Crohn's, and that's when I decided I would stop working with you know traditional medicine for my treatment um, because I just I found that and this was a long time ago, but I found that um, there was some nonsense about that form of treatment. This is in the 80s, so it was a really long time ago, but um, and I just decided that, that you know to kind of abandon that route and go an alternative route. Um, but there's always a relationship between illness and depression, you know. And we're just beginning to parse out the biochemical parts of it, for sure. So it's, it's deep. It's super deep. So good question. We need to totally get into it. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Kathy, thank you. That's great. Thank you. Um, you mentioned in your gift economies list about new fertilizers, and I lived in Oregon for a time where um, human oil was illegal, and city council had banned um, mostly communities who had. What was happening in Oregon at the time was suburban houses were sort of co-locating and removing their fences and starting backyard farms right. and homeschools and stuff like that, and we're starting what's called a human oil movement, where you know human Species yes. used as a um, and it was banned for you know health reasons that people don't really sort of understand. Is there a link between harvesting? Because you're talking about stool banks, which I don't know if they have to be in like you know certain conditions. Yeah. If there was ever like a lack of electricity, that would <laughs> you're right. Help us it would all go bad, very bad. Yeah. yeah. But would it, um, would it work if you use like human oil in the soil? Are those microbes, can those microbes like thrive in dirt and then be ingested? I don't know. You know, really good questions. And I'm doing research on soil stuff too, which I, I haven't thought of this particular combination in terms of. <coughs> using this for a, like a FMT, you know, mm -hmm. like maybe microbes from the soil, microbes from a person. <coughs> Excuse me, I have a little bit of a cold. And, and um, but I think that these are really good questions. And and yes, the the stool bank, you know, uh, the FDA, the the Federal Drug Administration in the states. Oh, thank you so much. Has um, determined that poop is a drug. So this this has yeah. So. This has stalled a lot of research, so it's made it very difficult to go forward with a lot of the research once this happened. Um, blood is not considered a drug, for example, so this is where you kind of get this strange break. And I don't know if you want to call it a break in the system, but I will. And um, so, like for example, when I was at the stool bank, you know, they'd finished uh, sort of preparing some of the stool. And I said to the technician afterwards, I said, so you're just going to take this and flush it down the toilet now, you know. And she said, no, we actually have to put it in a hazardous waste bag and have somebody come and pick it up because it's considered hazardous waste now. And it's like, okay. And, you know, yeah. 
And and they prepare they, they prepare it very simply. It's just kind of like mixed with saline solution and broken down. That's it. And then put in vials and then put into a, a freezer which is at minus eighty and kept. So you're right, if the power went off, everything goes. Yeah. But <clears throat> I don't know of research which is combining these kinds of, you know, bio, uh, microbiotica, bio, biota, like soil and, and human, mm -hmm. and there might be huge overlaps. You know, I have a long way to go in terms of my bacterial studies, and um, there, but I think that, that there could be something in that for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, that mother dirt product I showed you, yeah. for example. That relates very clearly to this relationship we have with the soil and there being bacteria there that keeps keeps animal immune systems healthy. You know, you, you all see your cats and dogs going outside and rolling around, horses, whatever, and coming back in dirty and going like, I feel so good. So, you know, we should be doing the same, I guess, you know, because there's a lot to be said for that.